Do you think that rap is really becoming an album-oriented as opposed to singles-oriented art form at this point? Definitely. I think everyone's getting stronger with with their uh, music making. Everyone's putting you know, a little more of their soul into the music. You know what I mean? Hip-hop is all about being the coolest kid. You know, you have to be the first one. It's all about discovery. You have to be the first kid to know who DMX is, the first kid who know who Memphis Bleak is. You know, because hip-hop is more than just about the person. It's more than just about me or anyone else. You know what I mean? It's about the whole culture, the whole music. From Breaking Atoms comes a brand new original podcast series celebrating the 20th anniversary of Jay-Z's sixth album, The Blueprint. In this first episode, we double back to a post-millennium New York where triumph and tragedy were both served in ample amounts. We'll look at Jay-Z ascending to the top of the rap kingdom, Rockefeller Records becoming a dynasty, more people than ever listening to what the South had to say, and hip-hop evolving into a unicron-like commercial juggernaut. We'll also learn how The Blueprint helped to repopularize sample-based hip-hop production in the mainstream. This is The Ruler's Back. The Blueprint by Jay-Z was released on Tuesday 11th of September 2001 on Rockefeller and Def Jam Records. The album was, once again, executive produced by Damon Dash, Kareem Biggs-Burke and Jay-Z himself. In the years following his Reasonable Doubt debut, Jay-Z had become a bonafide superstar with four consecutive number one albums, a string of hit records, a plethora of quotable guest appearances and multiple plaques glistening on his walls. The King of New York title was a highly coveted position among the Big Apple's MCs and can be traced back to the early 1990s. On the cover of the Source's July 1995 issue, the image of the notorious B.I.G. juxtaposed against the Twin Towers with the strap line, the King of New York takes over, made it clear who owned the throne. Biggie even adopted the alias of Frank White, taken from Christopher Walken's iconic King of New York character. Just two years later, with the swift and tragic death of the notorious B.I.G. in early 1997, Rap Mecca's throne was suddenly vacant. There was no shortage of challengers ready to step up and keep the plush seat warm. Jay-Z's rep continued to grow bigger and he was a fixture in the conversation of raw speculation. His intentions were repeatedly made clear on songs like The City Is Mine and Where I'm From. In the contact sport known as rap, competition is fierce. Jay-Z found himself sparring overtly and subliminally with other artists while facing criminal trials for gun possession and assault. However, real kings do real things. In the midst of these personal rivalries and legal struggles, Jay-Z somehow put together the blueprint, the first rap album from the 21st century to be added to the National Recording Registry. Let's go back slightly to the year 2000, the turn of the millennium. We're four years removed from hip-hop's second golden era. Hip-hop had proven it was never the fad that many detractors had called her in the years prior or a cheat code for the cool kids. Hip-hop had become pop culture, and everybody wanted in. With this rise in visibility and increase in marketing spend, it was all about the Benjamins. Rap music turned the American dream into a Scrooge McDuck reality for some artists and many labels. Artists from across the spectrum released some fantastic albums in 2000. Some dominated the charts, some became required listening in the rap canon, and some were just really dope. These include Stankonia by Outkast, 
When the Smoke Clears by 3-6 Mafia. Balance and Options by DJ Quick. Dirty Harriet by Ra Digger. Let's Get Free by Dead Prez. The Last Meal by Snoop Dogg and more. Andrew Barber, blog error OG and founder of Chicago-based music and media company Fakeshore Drive, talks about the diamond-encrusted success of Eminem and Nelly that year. He also reflects on the Dynasty album that Jay-Z released on Rockefeller Records that same summer. I want to say summer of 2000, you got like the explosion of Nelly and, and Eminem. So I'm in the Midwest. I'm in a Midwest guy. I'm at college in Indiana. And there is nobody bigger at this time than Nelly and Eminem. Midwest was going crazy. I don't know what it was like everywhere else, but in the Midwest, high school, college age kids, Nelly was like everything. His music was played at every party. That's really what you heard everywhere you went. Eminem, right? Those dudes were duking it out the whole summer of 2000 for number one. Like every other week, it was Eminem number one or Nelly number one. And these dudes each sold 10 million off that. So that summer, they just kind of kept going. And, and Jay, you know, had that that whole crazy wave too, where he had like, hey, Poppy, into I just want to love you and, you know, everything from the Dynasty album. Sean Sataro, associate editor at Complex, recalls how mixtape output among hip-hop artists was also prolific in this period. He also notes how track lists were like maps that could pinpoint an artist's upward trajectory. You know, I talked to Joe Budden about this once. Like, you could sort of watch people's careers advance by, you know, the number they were on the track list of a Clue tape, right? You start out at like 23, yeah, yeah. then maybe DJ you're at Clue. 16, That's then you're strong. at 8, and, you know, you could kind of tell people's status is rising as the, as the numbers got lower. Oliver Wang, author and co-host of the Heat Rocks podcast, remembers the 2000s continued the shift in mainstream hip-hop production towards cleaner and more radio-friendly sounds. He also notes how Jay-Z using sample-based production on the Blueprint was a pleasant surprise for him. What I remember most about hip-hop, especially in 2000 and 2001, it was the Triton era, meaning that it was uh, when synth-based production became really dominant. Uh, Much of it oriented around Korg's popular Triton series of keyboards. And look, don't get me wrong, I think producers like Timbaland and later the Neptunes and others really put in incredible work using these kinds of synthesizers. But as someone who grew up in the golden era, uh, so-called golden era of hip-hop, sample-based hip-hop was always going to be my preference. And I think that's precisely why I was so pleasantly surprised by the blueprint that for an album that had that high level of Jay-Z's commercial ambition, I wouldn't have been surprised if it was just all Triton beats. And instead, you have all of the sampling, all the soul sampling on it instead. So it felt like a refreshing break. Larry Compton, aka New Face, is a lifelong hip-hop connoisseur with a museum-like collection of rap-related memorabilia. Wherever people gather in the name of hip-hop, New Face is more likely there. He shares his thoughts on the blueprint signifying a stylistic change in rap music and the significance of the September 11th release date. Like blueprint change the trajectory of it like as a fan i'm always there for the change of the culture like it start getting so asinine or just so the same i'm like yo we need a, a change in the culture and a shift in the culture and that's what blueprint did for me at that moment um and unfortunately with 9-11 it's just something even with the world not just hip-hop culture at that point carla mar is the hip-hop editor for billboard he goes into detail about new york's collective grief following biggie's death He also name-drops a few of the emerging acts of the time and how they contributed to making hip-hop the number one selling genre in the world. 
to be honest with you, man, New York was still trying to figure out its identity. To me, I feel like, I mean, we were still coming off the death of big, you know, so that throne was still vacant. Like, yeah, you had uh, superstar acts like Hove, you had DMX, you had Nas, you had a rising artist like a Ja Rule starting to make noise. But New York was still trying to find that that king, that ruler. You had all these other cats coming through, barging their way and trying to make a presence in hip hop like Ludacris. Barging his way through. Nelly barging his way through. We already knew what Outkast was doing, but Outkast was going to a whole different level with what they were bringing. So, you know, the South was coming. The South was coming. And and then obviously, can't forget Missy Elliott, that crew were able to push us to that next step to be able to overtake rock and really become that preeminent genre. Jaina Jefferson, music and cultural journalist, credits a certain Marshall Mathers for expanding hip-hop's reach even further. She also highlights how Missy Elliott broadened the musical palette of hip-hop fans by incorporating Southeast Asian sounds into her creations. Because we had Eminem and because he was a white rapper, it allowed for a more palatable representation. So you were getting more white people who were enjoying hip-hop or listening to hip-hop. And then, of course, him having that Dr. Dre cosign gave him street cred in the eyes of, I guess, more hardcore hip hop fans and from the black community as a whole. You see, Elliot came out with Get Your Freak On in 2001. It was very Bangra inspired and it was really keeping something fresh and new. Tandy Sabanda, UK-based music and culture writer, reinforces the influence of Southern hip-hop acts and how the turn of the millennium marked even more change in the rap sound and aesthetic. Hip-hop's at that era where it's who's the king of New York, who's running New York, but at the same time we've got the influence from the South, Little John's coming in with all these different sounds. Hip-hop isn't the same anymore, but it's at that millennial zone. Everything's changing. Jason Burford. New York-based music journalist delves into why soul music remains a source of inspiration for hip-hop producers and a muse for MCs to go on with their penmanship. I think a lot of rappers back then grew up listening to soul music, right? So Jay-Z always says that he grew up listening to soul music. Those soul sample tracks, they mean so much to people. That shit is like, oh yeah, I'm hearing my childhood mixed with like just shit I listen to now because I relate to Jay-Z. Jay-Z, who I fucking get, who I understand who, just like me, is from the project, just like me, is a descendant of slave, just like me, has been to places in his life, you know, mentally been to many places, but I'm Brooklyn's own. Jaina Jefferson laments further on how sampling sparks curiosity in the heart of hip-hop heads. And later, Jesse Bernard, writer, DJ, and music researcher, explains how soul music is essential in preserving the legacy of black music. I think that there is such a magic in old soul samples. I think that a really well-utilized soul sample has the power to really influence someone who might not have heard that before to go back and study up on the history of the song, study up on the history of the musician, the genre, the group, the era from where the sample really derives. It really shows especially the influence of Black music as a whole. I think soul is a fundamental aspect of keeping hip hop alive. From a sonical perspective, hip hop has always been reliant upon upon soul music. I think sampling is necessary for the survival of black music. Bianca Gracie, music journalist, credits the Blueprint album for introducing chipmunk soul that later inspired groups like The Diplomats. You know, the quote unquote chipmunk soul was established with the Blueprint. You know, of course, Jay-Z did it. Kanye, Dipset took over with Chipmunk Soul. And I think that was really inspired by the Blueprint. I think uh, Black people really connect to nostalgia and escapism. And the addition of soul samples really helped 
tell a story, whether it was tied to bliss and, you know, hope and joy, or it was tied to trauma. Deborah Manis Gardner is the president of DMG Clearances and has cleared samples from music, TV and video games for over 25 years. She has worked with Kendra Lamar, DJ Khaled, Rihanna and Drake. She also cleared samples for Jay-Z's 2017 album, 444. She explains why she considers sampling to be a form of alchemy. She also shares her frustrations on how hip-hop musicians are unfairly stereotyped creatively and often suffer the consequences legally. You know, when I first started, we were told that sampling was theft and hip-hop was a phase. And that was back in 1990. The fact that you can take something from a pre-existing song and incorporate it into something new is a huge skill. I still think, you know, when it comes to the world of interpolations, which is a re-record um, or re-singing of vocals, I think the hip-hop and rap community have a more difficult time where if it's an alternative rock or country, we use the term, oh, influenced by, sounds similar. And we would never take legal action. You flip it over to a, this genre of music and it immediately becomes a legal issue that they stole. In the same way that sampling allows keen listeners to trace back the origins of their favourite records, Andrew Barber detects some of the early seeds of the Blueprint sound in another Rockefeller album released just three months before. And, and you know you know what's crazy is that summer, that, that, now that I think about it, the, uh, the Beanie Siegel album, The Reason, came out. And I, that album, to me, is the real precursor for the blueprint. Like, that is kind of like, all right, where this album, where is the Rockefeller sound going? It could have gone in, like, any direction at that time. But it really went for that kind of soul sample style. And, like, on the Beanie Siegel album, you know, you got No ID doing Man's World, which, I mean, how No ID chopped that record up is just insane. And I don't know if that record gets the credit it deserves, especially for the way that it, it kind of put that sound and that blueprint sound into, into motion. Jamil Yonguru Keaton is a Grammy award-winning audio engineer, sound scientist, hip hop historian, and a pivotal contributor to Rockefeller's success and legacy. He has worked on over 10 Jay-Z albums and has an impeccable knowledge of Hove's discography, both released and unreleased. His extensive credits include work with Bone Thugs and Harmony, Pete Rock, Gene Grey, L.O. Cool J, Rhapsody, and Little Brother. Young Guru tells the story of how he met Jay-Z for the first time and coming to baseline when it was under construction. During Bleak's understanding and during the end of Dynasty, Jay came over to check on Bleak one time. This is before I, I had ever worked with Jay. It was the first day I met Just as well. Just was working on a, a Memphis Bleak track. And I was just marveling at like how incredible Just was. And, and while Bleak is writing to the beat that we have up, again, we had tape back then. There was no Pro Tools or nothing like that. Bleak's writing Just is in headphones creating another beat, which ends up being stick to the script in that same session. So Jay had came over that day and he just liked the way I work. You know, he, he had spoken. Then he was like, OK, come over here to Baseline. Justin Hip Hop were super instrumental in bringing me into Baseline. When we when I came into Baseline, it was in the process of being built. The walls weren't done. Bank was in the B room. At this time, Rockefeller Sound is shifting to sample-based production. Young Guru credits three producers for this change. I think it's probably when you're first starting to hear this introduction of Kanye and Just into what they're doing. But you also have to understand that Bank was there setting a, a sound as well. Virginia's own Roosevelt Harrell, otherwise known as Bink, is one of the key contributors to the album. 
Bink emerged on the scene in the mid-90s and his first major look was a co-production credit with Teddy Riley on Don't Leave Me by Blackstreet. He's since produced classics for the likes of Rick Ross, Lost Boys, Nate Dogg, Diddy, Amory and more. He shares the story of how his relationship with Rockefeller Records began. Initially, they were looking for an intro, so somebody to score the intro to the Heart Not Life Tour. So my manager at the time, Jay Brown, invested him into letting me take a stab at it. And we got a session over at Enterprise Studios, and I think we were in the C-Room, and sampled Conan the Barbarian. I did this beat for that. Once they started using it for the tour, Beans heard it and was like, yo, hold up. I need this beat. So that intro ended up being Ride For My Niggas for Beans The Truth Out. Beans was the first guy out of Rockefeller to say, yeah, I want to rock over his shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, he was the first guy to, like, really take a stab at my, my music. So that's what started my Rockefeller relationship. One of the most infamous posse cuts from the Rockefeller era is 1900 Hustler. Bink explains how the song came to fruition, Beanie Siegel's ingenuity, and how Freeway ended up on the song. We was in there one day, and Jay was in the front lobby, and I pulled the chops up, and I played the chops for Jay. But the crazy thing was they had the beat for months. Finally, Def Jam was like, listen, this album needs to be turned in by Monday. Whatever it is, it's going to be. You know what I'm saying? Like, if y'all don't have it done by then, it's just what it is. So we all went to baseline. We, Bings came up with the idea of it being a call-in situation, teach people how to hustle. And that was the first time Freeway ever had a chance to rap. So he wasn't supposed to be on that record. So we needed a, a third verse. And they was like, yo, so who we going to throw in the third verse? And it's like... Everybody's at the studio that day, you know, wine and liquor's flowing, the weed is flowing, and Beans looking free. We're like, yo, you ready, champ? What's up? You got something? You're like, yeah. And so that's when Freeway was born. We all just finally, Beans came up with the genius idea to call in, and he'd be the operator, and, you know, that's him cussing me out at the end. I'm like, yo, I don't know what no, no stupid ass, no whack ass elevator music, you know what I'm saying? So a lot of people didn't know that. That's me at the end, Murder, Death, Kill, Homicide. The producer also reveals how the song we hear today is the product of a perfect mistake. They actually rhymed in the wrong section for my vision. You know what I'm saying? My vision was for them to rap in the opposite section. I wanted them to rap when the horns weren't going. They rhymed while the horns were playing, and it actually worked out. Newface believes Bink's name should be held in higher regard when it comes to Jay-Z's legacy. Um, first of all, I just got to start out with saying that Bink is probably still one of the most underappreciated factors of Ho's legacy. Doesn't get mentioned enough. Respect to everybody, but what Bink brought to the table was just one of one. Oliver Wang highlights Bink's consistency with putting numbers on the boards even before the blueprint dropped. The one thing about Bink that I think is striking is that if you look at Bink's production discography, he is possibly you know, the most prolific of the three because he has stayed contributing and producing every year and before before the blueprint and every year since it. So his his production discography is immense. And somehow we don't remember him, I think, in the same way that we do Jess Blaze and Kanye. But his production on here was just as essential. Mickey Hallebach, writer for Central Source, believes Bink's production brings out more introspection in Jay-Z's wordplay. Bink's production lifts the vulnerability out of Jay-Z's voice, I think more than any producer in the history of producing for Jay-Z has. I think that is something that is just so hard to come by. And like, no one really did it as well as Bink until No ID did it on 444. Justin Smith, better known as Just Blaze, is one of the primary producers on The Blueprint. 
His name started to make rounds in the late 90s when he produced tracks for Buckshot, Killer Priest and FT. His star continued to rise and his production credits now include Beyonce, Eric Sermon, Joe Budden, Saigon and more. He tells the story of meeting A&R consultant Dino Develli, who signed Cash Money and how that led him to being courted by Rockefeller's own G. Robinson to join their production team. I had a chance meeting with Dino, who was the guy who discovered Cash Money. And this was right when he had first signed them and given them that $32 million deal. Um, so he's like, listen, I got Rakim, I got Cannabis, this artist, that artist, I want to get you in with all of them. You know, let's definitely do a lot of business. So I'm like, all right, great. So I, I came back from a meeting feeling amazing and never heard from him again. To this day, I have still never heard from him. However, G, who now you all know is G. Roberson, G at the time, I had a meeting with Dino for an artist that he was trying to shop outside of Rockefeller by the name of Billy Bathke. And Bath didn't have a demo. Dino's like, oh, let me find some beats for you to run to. And the CD just happened to be my CD. He's like, oh, I just met with this kid named Just, blah, 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 blah. Puts my beats in. So I get a phone call at my day job. The guy on the phone says, oh, this is G from Rockefeller Records. I'm looking for a guy named Just, who's a producer. I'm like, oh, yeah, ha-ha, very, very funny, Bruce, and I hung up on him. Now, the Bruce I'm referring to is uh, Bruce Hornsby. I had developed a relationship with Bruce, and he knew what my deal was, so he used to sometimes prank call the studio or, and pretend to be like an A&R or uh, an executive looking to give me a million-dollar deal. So I'm like, yeah, very funny, Bruce, and I hang up. And uh, the phone rings again. It's like, hey, I was, look- I was looking for Justin. Somebody hung up on me, and I was like, oh, and that's when I realized that it wasn't a prank. It's Gene. He explains to me, you know, that he had had this meeting with Dino and that he had this artist and Dino had played my CD and, you know, they loved what they had heard. They were interested in having a conversation. One about Bathgate, but also about forming a production company at Rockefeller Records. Basically, Rockefeller's answer to Puff's hitmen. The production team originally included Just Blaze, Buckwild, Rockwilder, K-Rob and Kanye West. Unfortunately, the idea never fully materialised. But one of Just Blaze's first assignments was to help craft All Money Is Legal, the debut album from Emil. The production team never officially happened. You know, like I never signed to them. We basically just did a deal. I was kind of like, listen, you know, here's $250,000, you owe us 25 beats. My first major job for them was basically helping to put a Mills album together. So I engineered a Mills album, recorded all her, her vocals, tracked all her beats. And I was kind of like co-producing each song, even though I wasn't actually doing all the beats. You know, I was still co-producing the records, whether it was adding all to beats when needed or helping coach her through her vocals and just shaping the overall songs. And in the process, you know, G wanted to get Bath on a Mills album as a way to help push Bath. At this time, Just Blaze is sending beats to Jay-Z through an intermediary at Rockefeller Records. The feedback he got was so-so. His first encounter with Jay-Z was when the Rockefeller founder recorded for the fam. Just Blaze didn't have direct access. It took a record that was done for the Emil album for Jay-Z to recognise Just Blaze's production skills. Jay hears the record and he's like, yo, who did this beat? And they're like, Just. And he says something along the lines of, oh, he finally got it together. All right, tell him to send me some music. So we're wrapping up a Mills album, we're winding down, and I send over a tape. So I get a phone call like three days later, like, yo, Jay uh, recorded vocals to that beat. 
he wants you to come down to Baseline, the new studio we just built. We're going to be doing everything over there. I go over to Baseline and they played me what Jay recorded. And it was the beat that I had given him off of that tape. He had recorded a song from the dynasty known as uh, Streets is Talking. If I shoot you, I'm brainless. Different toilet, same shit. And I'm sick of explaining this. I'm waiting on the rain, man. My nigga is the plaintiff. So he plays it for me and I'm like, wow, this is, this is crazy. But Jay-Z's actually rapping on a record that I made, on a beat that I made in my house last week. He's like, I want to rap with you. Uh, give me a second. He goes in the booth and he starts doing the vocals to Parking Lot Pimpin'. This was like, this was, I think, the second song he recorded for the Dynasty album. I throw on my headphones and I brought my MPC with me. So while he's in the booth, I make two beats. One of which was a beat that I had made at a Bleak session the night before that Bleak didn't like. So I took that beat, continued to uh, work on that, and then I made another one. So Jay comes out the booth, and he's only, you know, he's fast. So he, only, he comes out like less than 10 minutes later, and I play him these two beats. He, he, he loved them both. And he's like, yo, when did you make these? I said, you got the machines up. And I'm like, right now. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I made these beats right now. He's like, but I was only in the booth for 10 minutes. So he's like, so you're telling me that you can work that fast at a high level, like constantly? And I'm like, yeah. So he said, all right, check this out. That room next door from now on is your room. Stick around, I'm gonna make you a star. And that's when it, that's when it really became official. Lily Mercer, DJ, presenter, and founder of Viper Magazine, compares Just Blaze's production to an academic syllabus. She also gives him props for how he can take well-known samples and make the funk feel fresh. It's some of the most impeccable production that we've ever heard from Just Blaze on this. Like, although he was kind of already quite a big producer, this actually felt like the moment when he was like really, like, almost like beginning his run of like that kind of sped up soul sample style of production. Even like, cause I really love what he went on to do after with the diplomats. And I think like this was the origins for me of hearing like what he could do in that kind of realm. Like listening to Just Blaze's production is often like a history lesson in music. And I feel like this album is definitely like a, a great example of that because some of the like samples he used are really out there. They're very well known, but he like kind of completely flipped them into something different. Dylan Green, writer and host of the Real Notes podcast, highlights how Just Blaze can put a pep in any step with his energetic expression of beat making. There's so much bombast to everything that Just Blaze does. Like he's like he's the guy who's busting through the gates at all times with the horns and the fanfare and like you know when it's a Just Blaze beat. Like there's just there's just like that like kinetic energy to it. It just feels very Jersey to me. Carl Lamar cites Just Blaze as one of the producers who offered an alternative to the bleeps and blips that owned the major radio airwaves at the time. He credits the Blueprint producers for getting even more juice out of the squeeze from Jay-Z's writing on the album. What Just was able to do, he really changed the landscape and helped build a real soul-stirring product that we were lacking in hip-hop because we were still coming off the whole bling-bling, glitz and glamour shit that Cash Money was bringing. So we didn't have that soulful sound. And we were used to the braggadocious hove. I mean, this is what he came with, you know, from day one. But these guys were able to have him tap into a whole different side and have us get an introspective hove, like on a song cry. Young Guru notes Just Blaze's quick and uncanny knack to tailor production for specific artists and projects. Just is a chameleon. Just can do anything. He can do any style of beat. You know what I mean? Sample beats all the way to Welcome to New York City is an all-keyboard beat. So it's really just like Kanye setting it off and then just already being in the B-room, sticking his head in and being like, oh, 
oh, this is what we on? This is the flow? This is what? Okay, cool. Let me go over here and chop up. I know where we at now. Kanye West crafted five songs in the blueprint, which is the most by any producer on the project. Even though the blueprint is widely considered his blow like the Chicago wind moment, Kanye West's first official appearance on Wax traces back to 1995. The British band Raw Stylist featured a rap verse from West on a remix of this single, Believe In Me. Shortly after, Kanye West produced most of the Down to Earth album by Grav and clocked in studio time with Jermaine Dupri, Infamous Syndicate and Goody Mob. Andrew Barber talks about being up on Kanye West early on. He remembers the exact moment when a hometown radio station proudly proclaimed Kanye West as one of their own. At that moment, dude, I'm all in on on Kanye. And he's still kind of like unknown, right? They know him. He's really known as a producer. I know the go-getters were out in Chicago and people knew them, but it wasn't like, you know, he wasn't a, a household name. But I remember I'd been in Chicago right after Izzo leaked. And I remember they played it on the radio. 75 WGCI FM Chicago. And I remember they played it. It was right out. I mean, it was right around the 4th of July. They were like, Chicago's own Kanye West did the production. And that's what I'm like, okay, he's on now. Like that was kind of really his his big takeoff moment. Kanye's extraordinary sense of timing isn't limited to making beats. Young Guru shares a funny memory of Kanye showing up just when Jay-Z and Scarface needed to record. So Scarface comes to the baseline, right? We in there, we kicking it, we eating, you know, we, we drinking, we doing whatever. And it's like an hour later, Scarface looks at Jay. He's like, so where's the beat? And Jay look at Scarface and he's like, it's your album. You're supposed to have the beat. And I swear to you, like a sitcom, everything happens right at the right time. People walk in the room at the right time, everything. Kanye walks through the door as soon as they got done saying that. And Jay looks and he goes, there's the beat, right? That's exactly how Gessu's <laughs> back happens. Baseline Studios was the de facto headquarters for Rockefeller between 2000 and 2003. Founded by Juan Perez and basketball player Malik Seeley, who died in 2000, the studio was set up by Dave Malapold of Pro Audio Design. It was a state-of-the-art facility where collaboration solidified camaraderie. Right at the heart of New York City, a who's who of hip-hop found themselves recording at the storage studio. Young Guru explains why Baseline was akin to a creative hub where artists could cultivate their talents and sharpen artistic steel. First of all, Baseline is another part of the group. It is a part of Rockefeller, like as, as important as any producer or artist. Baseline was started by Juan and Malik Sealy, God bless the dead. And that's why we used to have all the Malik Sealy jerseys around the walls of Baseline. Like we had every single one of his jerseys on the wall as a homage to him. Baseline was the, the club. It was the come hang out spot. You got to remember, there's no nets. There's no 40-40 clubs around two o'clock, three o'clock. Jay would just naturally be there hanging out. You know what I mean? And then all the artists were always there. Me and Just were always there 24 hours a day. So artists always know, like, it was really like me, hip hop, Just, I would say TT Apachito, who, who, who was uh, uh, Juan's nephew, was also like, you know, answered the phones. It was the front desk, but was also like part of the group. Just Blaze reflects on his time at Baseline Studios and how proximity with his label mates positively impacted the music they would make. You look at uh, any great movement in music history, there was generally an environment where there were a lot of creatives under one roof. Whether you're talking Rough Riders, whether you're talking Rockefeller, whether you're talking Bad Boy, whether you're talking Motown, you notice a clear difference in the output, not just in the volume, but in the quality of output from Rockefeller once Baseline came to existence. 
because you would have that environment that was with all those creative minds under one roof 24-7. Like an average day at baseline would be like Bleak coming in at 10 a.m. because he was an early bird. Jay is there by 2. Dipset gets there by 8 o'clock. And as that winds down, Bean shows up at 3 in the morning. And then the cycle starts again. And then aside from that, on the music side, you have me in the B room. You have Ye flying back and forth from Chicago and then eventually moving to Hoboken. Um, you have Rockwilder and Bink floating through. You know, you have Pharrell popping in. Tim didn't come to Baseline much because he had his own studio at Manhattan Center. There's a reason why a lot of the cast and characters from those albums were the same folks because it was all of us under that roof. Young Guru speaks on the autonomy that OG One provided as the studio owner to him and Rockefeller as they essentially took over the spot and got down to business. He also tells the story of OG One throwing away the original recordings of one of the most iconic jazz artists ever. OG really let us run that spot. It's OG's business. It's his studio. But he was just basically like, look, Goo, Hot, TT, you know what I mean? Appetito. Y'all tell me when y'all need toilet paper and paper towels and light bulbs and that. You know, other than that, like we was in there just making sure everything ran, making sure equipment was good, making sure like all the artists had what they need. That's where we kept all the reels. It was a studio. Baseline was a studio before it was being built, right? So that space had already been a studio. So when Juan was having the construction done, there's a reel in there. And Juan is just cleaning up. He's having everybody clean up and he throws this reel out. So the next day, somebody comes back and was like, yo, what happened to that reel that was right there? And Juan was like, what reel? It wasn't ours. Like I threw it out. It was like, no, that was a Miles Davis reel. So it was a Miles Davis <laughs> 24 track, but Juan threw it out. And because he didn't know what it was, he was just like, you know what I mean? It wasn't labeled. It wasn't, he just thought it was like old tape. Newface and Young Guru recall Kanye West making the trip from Jersey to New York with a single CD of beats. Little did anyone know that the recording process for the blueprint was about to begin. I heard it was like a, a beat CD that Kanye gave to Guru and there was nine beats on it and Blueprint took seven. That's big in itself, but it wasn't like the other two were trash. Ludacris took one, Alicia Keys took the other one. So it was like, Damn, like I've seen producers go past beats and listen to stuff next, next, next. But to be like, yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll take that. That says a lot about Kanye and how hungry he was and how he was at the right moment at the right time. What actually happened was Kanye was living in Jersey at the time. He was living downtown. He just came to the studio with a CD that had nine incredible beats on it. And that's really how it started. This was a Friday. By that Monday... There were seven to nine songs that appear on the Blueprint the way that they are. That was the bulk of the recording of the Blueprint. On the next episode of The Ruler's Back, we'll explore the making of the Blueprint, revisit the highly anticipated lead up to its release, Jay-Z declaring war at Summer Jam 2001, and start breaking down songs and lyrics from the album. This series is produced by Breaking Atoms and is mixed and mastered by Dave Walker. To stay in the loop and receive episodes as soon as they drop, follow and subscribe to Breaking Atoms or search for Breaking Atoms wherever you listen to your podcasts.